All right, good morning, everybody. Now, uh, okay, so let's get started. We, um, at the beginning of class here, I'm going to uh, just read a couple Bible passages. I think um, there's like two, two, uh, two sections with a kind of a hinge in the middle. The two sections are the basic fundamental idea that God's ways are above our ways. And that simple statement, what does that exactly mean? And then the second part would be the hiddenness of God. And, and then the, the hinge is, does, is this just kind of lofty academic thoughts or is it really practical? And I argue it's very practical um, because it's idol worship if we don't study this. So, I mean, I'm not about idol worship. So I think, I think hopefully everyone else is along with me on that one. We'd rather not worship idols. But, um, so the first text is Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I know Lauren Winter makes reference to uh, Exodus chapter 20, which we'll discuss real quick. And then she also talks about Ex- uh, Isaiah 45. That will be our section, second section on the hiddenness of God. But Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Uh, well, actually, uh, so let's start at verse 6. This chapter in Isaiah obviously comes at, you know, we, we read a lot of these chapters from Isaiah around uh, Easter or Holy Week. So, um, anywho, that's beside the point. We actually don't read this text specifically. But Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So we have this interesting... Uh, statement that God is to be revealed and he's not far away, he's close. Okay. There's going to be a little bit of an irony here in verses 8 and 9. Or paradox. I, I'm sorry, not irony. Paradox. Let the wicked forsake his way and, let, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. That's, that's good. We need to forsake uh, our ways and our thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Abundantly is a, uh, like a, a word for like forever and ever. So it's not like Thanksgiving and the cornucopia. Abundantly is a, uh, uh, like, an, like think about eternity in that respect. It's just forever, infinity. And then verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, with that statement, God then declares this fundamental difference between him and creatures, God and creatures, fundamental difference. And that is uh, very important for us. There is a gap. There's a now. Um, so, we as Lutherans believe that we cannot bridge that gap. Now, when we think about the gap, we normally think about how we stand before God as sinners, and that's part of that. However, there is a gap created by us uh, between God and us because He's God and we're creatures. This is kind of nature of who we are. We are not the Creator; we are creature. So there is, a, there is a difference. Now, what the chapter in this, this book, the, this poverty of expression, 
what it gets to is the idea that the difference isn't a matter of degree, meaning you know, some are more different and less different. When we talk about there is a difference between God, the creator and creatures, God and, and us, it's a difference of difference. Uh, it's not a difference, it's, it's the difference. And that's, that's really important for us as we think about God and approach God. All right. And, you know, she gives a, uh, so this infinite God, God is, you know, big, 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 big. And he's also small, 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 small. So the finite is not capable of comprehending the infinite. That is like an old theological statement that that's just kind of working premise as we approach God. Which means then we have to approach God in humility and um, prayerfully. Okay. But we'll get to that in a second with the hinge. She, uh, Lauren Winter does do a good job, though, of creating this image of how um, it's, it's from page 235. I cannot describe God in the same way that I cannot describe a picture I'm holding millimeters from my eyes. So in Isaiah 55... He, uh, he tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. And we think, oh, hey, God, God is close to us so that we can kind of lay hold of him. But there's a danger and we lay hold of God because then when we think we lay hold of him, we think we now have, uh, because of our sinful desires, control of him. But, Lauren Winter's uh, uh, image is really good. God might be very close to us, but that doesn't mean he's any easier on it to understand than as if he was really far away. So, um, the, uh, that I'm holding millimeters from my eyes, the picture is made strange and unknowable, not because it's distant, but because it's so close. Or to return to an analogy we considered in the first pages of this book, I cannot describe God in the same way I cannot describe the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There's just too much there for me to describe. So that's why when we talk about the difference, we're not talking about a difference where we can kind of get used to it. It's, there's always a difference. And that's, 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 uh, that's really important for us to kind of think about. And that's why this chapter is really helpful for us even as we approach Jesus Christ. Um, because Jesus bridges this gap. The craziness of, of Jesus is that God, who is infinitely different, is also, he's, he's, he's a creature. He's a man. He, was, he has a birth. He has a death. So that, that's why that's very confounding for us. And we have to acknowledge that. That's also, too, where um, the... Um, in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, when Jesus is working, like, do you know the Pharisees, what are they always, what, 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 what are some of the things that the Pharisees have, some of the problems they have with Jesus? They don't believe in the Son of God. Well, no, 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 before that, yeah, they don't, but what are the questions they ask him? Who? Yeah, who are you? Uh, there's a great scene um, after... Um, uh, the blind man in, uh, I think it's chapter 9. I think so. Uh, you know, Jesus 
heals a blind man, and then they say, oh, you're a sinner, and that's why you're, you're with him. And they call Jesus in, and Jesus is like, what's your problem? And then one of the Pharisees is like, who are you? They don't, they don't understand where he comes from, which is also at the beginning of the Gospel of John. They go to John the Baptist, and they say, who are you? We have to give an account. And John's Baptist, what is, what is John the Baptist's answer to that? Think about it. It's a, I mean, you can look it up, I suppose. But I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Which, of course, if you're thinking like me, he's like a fart in the wind. Why is that, why, why, why is that similar? Why is that analogous? He's a voice, which means John's identity is a, is a nothing. Like, he, 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 he doesn't matter. Because, just like as a voice you hear in the wilderness, you look around and what happens? You don't, yeah, you don't see anything. Um, which is like far in the wind. But smart. You smell it rather than hear it. Uh, the, but the thing is, though, he goes, I am not the Christ. That statement, what kind of statement is that? Think about the chapter, I'm sorry. Related to the chapter, he's an, it's an apophatic response. He's speaking truthfully. He cannot, he cannot say who he is, and he cannot say who Jesus is, but he can definitely say that he's not Jesus. Now, some of us might say, well, of course he can't say who Jesus is because he hasn't met him, and, you know. But that's the struggle through all of the Gospel of John. Who is Jesus? Now, what's interesting in the Gospel of John is that he says, I'm going to show my glory. John chapter 12, verse 32 maybe, or 28-ish. Um, uh, he's going to say, everyone's going to behold my glory when I am lifted up, and I will draw all people to myself. Now, when he's lifted up, that's his glory. What's his lifting up? All right. Which, of course, is not a full revelation of his glory. It is a hidden glory. But we get ahead of ourselves a little bit. But the whole point, though, for the Gospel of John is that God is revealing himself in Jesus because without that, no one can know what's going on. And the most faithful answer that John the Baptist, who of course is the, the pinnacle of Old Testament times, right? Um, in the Gospel of Luke, um, or no. Yeah, well, I think it's in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, there's no man greater than he, but even the least of him who's in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John the Baptist who is the most, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament times. He is as good as it gets. The only answer he can say is, I'm not. Okay? So this is really important. This is something that's woven within Scripture, is this apophatic, kind of this negative theology. The thing is, though, is that's a starting point. In the Gospel of John, it's, it's clear, right? He, I am not the Christ. Well, then, who is the Christ? Well, it's this Eggman, this crazy guy who's going around healing people and, 
and uh, confounding the Pharisees and even his disciples he's offending. John chapter 6, people leave and say, this is a hard saying. But of course, then he asks Peter, are you going to go too? And what does Peter say? No, because you have the words of eternal life. So, that's his confession in the Gospel of John, but most likely, or I'm sorry, there's other confessions of Peter in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, and he says, especially in Matthew, chapter 16, Matthew says, you are the Christ. And then what, what does Jesus say to, to, to Peter there? Blessed are you, for who, re- who revealed it to you? Yeah, that's right. Not flesh or blood. So, what Jesus is saying is that there is a gap between God and you, Peter. And you cannot know God unless God reveals it. So this is something that's really important for us to understand is that we, we cannot approach God because there's this gap between us. Not, it's just inherent of who we are as creatures. So in, in the garden, even though Adam and Eve live in perfect communion with God, they are not they are not god i mean there's there's there are creatures still they only live by the power of god they they can only confess and breathe according to god's work which for us as lutherans and really any christians should make sense right we're saved by grace okay we live by grace nothing we do is really our own okay um, in fact, so in Isaiah 55, Martin Luther goes to the point where he says, your thoughts are not my thoughts, and he, he talks about what your thoughts means. He basically says, there's no thought that you have that's not soiled with sin. So our thoughts are sinful thoughts. The only way we can think about God or confess God, speak about God, know God, is if, so the only thoughts that Think about God are godly thoughts. Well, if we're sinful, they're sinful. So the only godly thoughts we have are from, from God. Yeah. Well, yeah, through the Holy Spirit. That's right. So, I mean, the, this is something where this is kind of just part of who we are as Christians, but we don't really think about it that way. And this chapter is, is kind of helpful to really kind of drive that point home. It's, it's kind of the logical conclusion of what we already believe. So, um, uh, okay. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's a starting point. The struggle in speaking about God is not that we can say anything, but that we say too much. And that's the danger of Christianity, is that we speak where God speaks and we remain silent, where God doesn't speak. And, um, yeah, that, that will be something, too, like we struggle with, especially as we talk about the hiddenness of God. Yeah, like where we talk about tragedy. It's very hard for us to not say something. But that's, that's, that's like a really good spot to not say anything. But um, anyways, all right. So, uh, so the other Bible passage is Exodus chapter 20. 
It's at the end of the Ten Commandments. I, I think I've, sped about, I've said things about this before. This Bible passage is, is really interesting for me on a variety of reasons. But Exodus chapter 20, I think it's verse 21. So it's uh, God just kicked butt in Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They are now at Mount Sinai. Um, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. The one spot where God speaks to the people audibly without any like any prophet or anything. And uh, the people react with fear. They're scared. They're scared of him. They don't like that. They want Moses to go and talk to God and then have Moses speak to them what God says. Um, which, you know, kind of is interesting. We think about the gap between God and us as something that's like a problem. But in fact, uh, the gap between God and us is actually not so much a problem. Because when he closes that gap, or he gets really close, especially in the Old Testament, we're afraid of it, and we'd rather have him go back up on top of the mountain. Moses, go up there, okay? So anyway, so verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So God is in the darkness. Which is very hard for us to imagine, because especially in the New Testament, John chapter 8, evening prayer, Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. But God is in the darkness, according to Exodus 20. So this darkness is, is uh, it's twofold. It's one where um, you, you, can't, you can't exist in the darkness on your own merit. Now, of course, going back to the voice one crying in the wilderness, if you're in the darkness, what would your, be your primary sense that would you use? You can't use your eyeballs anymore. Yeah, hearing. So, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way the straight of the world. Also, too, the desert or the wilderness is a disorienting place. And so, the voice one crawling, crawling, calling is, is uh, picking up on this image, too, of the darkness. Because Moses went into the darkness to what? To talk with God. Yeah. So, uh, this is a very kind of profound place now. It's this darkness. So anyways, so you, get, you can't go in the darkness and just start making things up. Because, I mean, you can't start talking about something. I mean, what, what are you going to talk about? How think dark things are? Well, it's dark. I mean, you, you, there's nothing, you can't say anything else. That's all you can say. So talking too much is just kind of silly. Jan. I guess I really had a problem with her taking the darkness and doing all this other stuff around it. Because you go to chapter 34, and Moses comes back down from the mountain, and he is showing the brilliance of God. The That's right. Even look at him because of the radiance of his face, and so I look at this darkness as literally a protection for the people. If God had shown that, because remember, right. sticks 
Moses into the cleft of the mountain and puts his hand over it, right. and he sees the back of him. That's right. This is all very important, yes, because what, what, what happens if they see the God face to face? They die. Exodus 30, 33 and Genesis 32, when Jacob wrestles with God, he finds out it's God, and he's like, oh, I'm alive still. I can't believe it. So, yeah, Jan, you're right. You're right. And so this is really important for us is that when she, uh, Lauren Winter uses this apophatic theology, she doesn't really draw upon the rich history of it. See, the rich history of apathetic theology or negative theology, I am not the Christ, um, really is kind of strange. And, and when Pastor Brzezik asked, what are we talking about today? I said, apathetic theology. He's like, oh, it sounds like Zen Buddhism. <laughs> but, um, yeah, but it is, like, kind of. I mean, in the sense that, like, it's not. But, I mean, like, that, you could be mistaken for that. So, where does Moses get this brilliance from? Yeah, but where is it? The brilliance is found in the darkness where God was. Yeah, so this is kind of this, this paradox. And this is really important for us. So, Jan, you hit on the second part of the darkness, is that it is protection. So when God hides himself, it's, it's not as like, hey, I don't want to be found. In fact, the irony, there's an irony when God hides. He hides himself specifically so he can be found. I know that sounds strange, but it's true. Okay, so um, the um, yeah so so, in ex, uh, so Exodus twenty in the darkness is that there is this area where we can't we can't do anything unless God talks to us. We can't speak about God unless God speaks to us, and that's manifested then in Moses. Thank you for bringing this up because I didn't think about this. In Moses' face, it's brilliant, right? But when he speaks to the people. He covers his face, right? He doesn't uncover it. But they asked him. They Right, because it's what? It's too much. But he does take it off, though. Yeah, so it's very, it's very interesting. Now, of course, he doesn't disobey God by doing that. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, it's not like God says, don't do that. Which, of course, he does do that throughout the Old Testament. If somebody screws up, and does something he doesn't like, he'll say, why did you do that? You know, now you're going to have leprosy on your forehead, like we read last night in my family, in Uzziah, in Second Chronicles. He did something God didn't like, and he got leprosy on his forehead. So, um, that's usually what happens in the Old Testament. So, him covering his face, even though the people ask for it, it's not like, it's not. It, it's it's the thing that happens, and that's kind of um, confessed by Saint Paul also in Second Corinthians chapter three uh, as a foil. So uh, Moses talks to, uh, with a veiled face, but now in the New Testament times, it's unveiled. But of course, it's unveiled, and it shows it shows Jesus, which again is a manifestation of God's hiddenness. Uh, the, the crucifixion, I mean. Okay. Um, which also, too, Jan, I know we're on a tangent now, but is uh, when God puts Moses in the cleft, I think I might have said this before, I, I like to think about when God puts his hand over his eyeballs, you know? We always think that's kind of anthropomorphic language. What if it was a hand? And the reason why he had to cover Moses' eyeballs is because if he didn't, who would he see? The pre-incarnate son of Jesus, 
I mean, uh, Jesus himself, pre-incarnate son of God. And, then, and there wasn't the time to see him yet. So he goes like this. Because the glory is being revealed, right? And we find out the glory is, in fact, Jesus. John chapter 1. Because that's what happens in the transfiguration. Well, that's a, yes. Oh, see, man, there's a lot of good connections. Good job, Jan. <laughs> Which also goes to, uh, you know, we're going to follow the rabbit hole really quick. Uh, the transfiguration, I've always, uh, so there's this illumination of who Jesus is. And I, I, always, um, I always wonder, because we always think that we're seeing Moses and Elijah like, uh, this is going to sound like Doctor Who, so hang on, like in the present tense. But what if we're seeing Moses and Elijah in the past tense, but presently? So like when Jesus is talking, when God is talking to Moses and Elijah in these Old Testament times, you know, what are they talking about? Well, we find out in the Transfiguration, they're talking about what? His exodus, which is mainly, we, we talk about his death and resurrection. We have Jesus talking about Abraham and the prophets of old and the desire to see things. It's in John chapter 8. How, uh, especially Abraham, how he longed to see this day. Um, so, I, you know, I do wonder if God was talking to them about things that were to come. <laughs> Anyways, that's a rabbit hole. Let's uh, put that away. Okay, anyhow, so uh, apathetic theology, negative theology... Boils down to Ecclesiastes chapter 5.2. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. I think that's kind of, I like that. So that means though, as much as uh, negative theology says I, we can't talk about God, it actually confesses that we can't talk about God because we have to talk about God. <laughs> Which uh, is a, it's, it's really a starting point. It's a great starting point to, to say that you can't just, there's no diarrhea of the mouth when you talk about God because it quickly turns into idol worship. Carol? Would it be a little better to say we are not able to talk about God because we don't have that? <laughs> like it won't ever happen. Or, or it's, it's, it's a rule type of thing, you know, like yes or no. Got it. But the able, we're not able to really talk about God because of that. Difference. That's right. But we can talk about him by, God's, by God's grace, and it's God actually speaking through us, Holy Spirit, which is, um, yes, yeah, that's, that's probably better. But the... Um, uh, Right. One thing, too, about apathetic theology, too, I, there's a uh, Gregory of Nyssa, I believe. He's, a, he's an old church father from the desert. He loved the desert. Uh, I think he says, what is two times five? And he said, you could go and say, it's not one, it's not two, it's not three. It's not, those are all true answers, right? I mean... I, mean, I haven't had math in a long time, right? But it's 10, I believe. <laughs> 2 times 5 is 10. 
but it's not one, it's not two. These are all true answers. But Gregory Nyssa says, but you could spend an eternity saying what it's not. It's not until you say it is ten that we actually get something that we can hold. And when we say hold, he's, he's talking about embracing. So, like, you need to give God a hug in that sense. Holly. Uh, I, was, I was thinking about like, the names of God a lot in reading this chapter. Right. He has given us ways to talk about him. Right. Yep. And it identifies different parts of his character that maybe are more understandable to our human That's right. So this is the condensation of God. Philippians chapter 2. Um, you know, even though he was God, did not consider it to be something to grasp, but consider himself to be a servant, even death on the cross. Now, what happens right after that little bit there? What, what, is, what do we... This is related to Holly's thing. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that... Jesus. So, this is very important for us. So when God comes down in the form of a servant, that's not just like an idea of like him, you know, crucifying himself. I mean, getting crucified. It's also with language. God gives us words to speak, which of course, according to the Gospel of John, makes sense because Jesus is the Word. Um, so this is all really... Uh, Jesus stuff. I didn't think about that when I wrote down the, the, the plan here, but that would have been easier to say. Um, so the practical concerns is, yeah, this isn't just lofty kind of esoteric kind of stuff. This is really, we're just talking Jesus stuff. Um, and uh, so I think we talked about all this stuff already. Um, oh, Isaiah f- f- uh, 6 is important. So when Isaiah sees God's glory kind of touched on this already. Um, Isaiah 6, the calling of God. He, he sees um, God's glory fill up the temple. And Isaiah, in verse 5, says, I am a man of a sinful lips. I'm lost. Now, the thing is, though, I'm lost can be translated, I'm silenced. So he's before God in the glory of God. Now, what is the glory of God according to Isaiah 6? Like, how would you describe it? It's, it's a cloud, which of course reminds us of Exodus chapter 20 and darkness. So he's silenced in the darkness. But what does the angel do with the coal? He puts it on what? Yes, on his, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips, which means he can't speak about who God is until the angel comes and... And now he's, which is precisely what is God? God is looking for who? In Isaiah 6, someone to do what? That's right. Here am I. Right, Isaiah says, right? Send me. Um, All right, so God is scary in that respect. So this goes back to the hiddenness of God, as Jan said. Uh, God's in the darkness because if he's not, we're going to get zapped. Okay. Uh, 
Why do we talk about all this stuff? Oh, yeah, so we just touched on this. My third, my third point about the practical aspect is, one, since it's impossible or we're not able to speak about God without God, the good news is that he's revealed to us in his word. He's given us his word, both in speaking but also embodiment in the incarnation. So rather than despi- uh, despairing about the inability to know his name, pray to him or praise him, we turn to his word and we say the same thing. Now, the next temptation is when we say the same thing, the temptation is we, to say that we know it completely. Because if we confess, if we say we know everything completely, then we're saying we have, in fact, bridged this gap. And we often, it turns into what when we say that way? It turns into legalism. You, you need to just do what I say. But of course, um, you know, a couple years ago we went in this book about idols. And uh, idols do not allow questions. God invites questions. So with that said, if God invites questions, the words we think we know, if we have no questions about them, we've now, we've, we actually think we've um, exhausted the meaning. Which of course can't be. All right, so anyways, so we, but we, that means we keep saying the same thing, which for a lot of us, you know, sounds like, oh, it's so redundant. I mean, why do you, you know, this, I've been asked this before, you know, we say this, the Lord's Prayer all the time. To which I say, yeah, that's, that's right. It's good. Yeah, but you just go through the motions. You just say the words. I'm like, well, you don't really know that, to my criticizers, um, critics. But at the same time, I, w- I would say, is, so you think that I can actually know those words fully? I mean, that's the insinuation. Which, of course, you know, the people who ask me those questions, they know enough about God's word. They say, well, no. But wouldn't it be better to, you know, just kind of spontaneously say something? Well, maybe sometimes, but you can never go wrong with the Lord's prayer, is what I would say. Because it's Jesus' prayer. Well, that's right. So, we, and so this is a great thing about negative theology. And we didn't really talk about this. Is um, I can't remember if she does in the book now. The role of silence in prayer. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, famous Lutheran, he, has a, he, has, he speaks a lot about prayer and silence. Um. And I think there's a bunch of other Christians who pick up on this: is that the more they pray, the less they say, because they just they enter into that presence with God, and they realize they don't have really anything to say <laughs> that's not soiled with sin. So, so they just remain quiet and they listen. <laughs> now, of course, if they listen, God's word can't stay in us, but it wells up. And out of us. Okay. So it's always good to say the Lord's Prayer and have confidence in the fact that even though you might say it every day, multiple times a day, you're not exhausting the word. You're not exhausting it. Which is a good segue to the hiddenness of God. All right, so the next, yeah, so Isaiah 45, we read it in chapel, but I'll read it again. 
Isaiah 45 is a, um, this is the one spot where God says, hey, I hide myself. So Isaiah 45, verse 15. Now, actually, before we get to this, a little bit of, uh, you know, because the hiddenness of God is very difficult for us on two levels. One is God's hiding. Sometimes it's hard to find Penelope when she plays hide-and-seek because she likes to hide in the clothes hamper. She's very quiet. So uh, the hiddenness of God is, is, you know, it's hard sometimes because you can't find them. Um, but uh, the hiddenness of God is also like Daphne. She's not good at playing hide-and-seek. She's getting better, though. You know, but she always liked to be found. So, you know, uh, unfortunately, she is getting better and she can be quieter longer. So, um, so it's uh, anyways, so uh, so there's kind of this the paradox, right, where God's like hiding and you can't find him and he's hiding and you can't find him. And so it's a little bit strange. Uh, and that's in Isaiah 55, actually. There is this God contradicts himself. It seems like Luther actually says that. In fact, I think he, did I quote that? It's like, uh, he clearly, clearly he contradicts himself. I think he uses the word clearly. Maybe I didn't write that down. Oh, yeah, well, I didn't quote him, but it's uh, from yeah, Luther's works. When uh, a, a God tempts Abraham, Luther says, well, clearly God contradicts himself, <laughs> which I think is funny, because he sounds like a, like a fundamentalist when you use the word clearly. Clearly, says this. All right, never mind. That's a bad old joke, pastor joke. All right, so Isaiah forty-five seven. Um, I form the light and create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I'm the Lord who does all these things. You have this uh, paradox. So, and then it comes up into the Isaiah forty-five fifteen, where he says, "Truly, or uh, thus says the Lord." It's a little strange because you're thinking, he, yeah, okay. God is speaking, and this is what he says. Truly you are a God who hides himself. God of Israel, oh God of Israel, the Savior. Um, so you, you have this hiddenness of God. And really that stresses what we already talked about was that he hides himself for um, two particular reasons. There's the fact that we're finite and he's infinite. So he's kind of beyond our knowledge. We see this in Luke chapter 24. Jesus comes up to two guys walking down the street to Emmaus, and what what happens? Do they recognize him? No. You know, some people will say, you know, but there's no, there's nothing in the Bible of him disguising himself. Now, Renaissance paintings will have Jesus usually without a beard in the resurrection. There's a Caravaggio painting, The Road to Emmaus, where he's sitting at the table and he has no beard. So some people are like, well, if they don't recognize him, there has to be something about like his facial features. They wouldn't recognize him. I mean, that could be true, since nobody was there to actually see it. Um, or it could be of the fact that he is now, he is now entered, he's entering into this resurrection life, which is beyond our existence, so we can't actually, it's beyond the, the, the horizon. So we can't, we can't actually get there unless we go over the horizon, which 
We haven't because we haven't died and rose again. Holly. That's exactly right. So even though he's in plain sight, he is hidden. And it's because of this, uh, he's kind of entered into the heavenly realm and we're still in the earthly realm. Well, he does unveil himself, though, right? Because they do recognize him. But what happened? But oh no, no, yeah. So we're we're talking about. So that's the condensation of Jesus, where he comes down and lives amongst his people. He dies, of course, descended into hell, and then on the third day he rises again. So we have this kind of movement, down, 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 and then back up. The resurrection is his kind of his heavenly ascent. So yeah, so even. When he's going down, he's revealing himself. God is revealing himself. And God's always revealing himself. So this is not unusual. It just goes to the show, the, the finiteness of who, who we are. So in Luke chapter 24, he, you know, he celebrates the Lord's Supper, and then what happens to him? Or what we think? And then what does he do? What is what happens? And they see Jesus clearly, right? No, no, no. They don't see Jesus, though. He vanishes. Boop. Now, of course, one has to ask themselves, does Jesus, does he like, is he not there anymore? Or is he like he was before and they don't recognize him? Or do they recognize him differently? Because those two disciples go find Peter and the twelve, and what do they say? We've seen the Lord. He opened our minds to the scripture, and we saw him in the breaking of the bread. Well, Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him either. In the Gospel of John, that's exactly right. Rabboni! Until, what does he say? Is Mary. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty cool, right? I think that's, I love that kind of stuff. I think it's very interesting. Um, anyways, so that's the whole point. So God hides himself, but at the same time, in his hiddenness, he's revealing himself. So there's this, this great thing is that um, we look for God where he's hiding. It's like playing hide and seek with your children, they got their favorite spots of hiding. So you pretend not finding them. You go around, oh, yeah, where are you? Okay. And you know, one, you know, one's behind the shower curtain, one's in the closet, one's maybe under the bed or in the clothes hamper. You know, I mean, you, you just know that. So um, it doesn't mean God can't be found. It's just that means he wants to be found in the places where he wants to be found. Um, so it's good for us. Again, because if he didn't hide, we would all be burnt toast. Uh, Exodus 33, um, okay, uh, why is God hidden? Oh yeah, so okay, the second reason why God is hidden is because our sinfulness, not only our creatureliness, but our sinfulness, um, uh, because man is curved in on herself, I say her herself, because it's when his Bible study, um, which of course causes a lot of hiddenness. If you're sinful and you're curved in on yourself, because what our stance in life should not be looking at ourselves, but looking at God. But when we're curved in on ourselves, sin makes us blind to Him. So God is hidden 
not necessarily always because of him, but because of us. At the same time, sin also hides ourselves. I think Adam and Eve. Did I, I think I might have wrote that down. Yeah. So, when Adam and Eve sin, what do they go do? Yeah, they go hide. Yeah. Where are you, Adam and Eve? Because before that, they had always walked with him in the garden. Yeah, I mean, they didn't have to hide. They, had no, they were naked and unashamed, without shame. But when sin comes, they, they need to hide. Um, of course, okay, so to think about the hiding bit, uh, they hide themselves how? There's two kinds of hiding. One is they're hiding, one's God's hiding. Think about them. They go hide. Where do they go hide? I mean, think about it. Right? Bushes are somewhere. Yeah, right. Good. In the bushes. But of course, what do they have on now? Yeah, they got leaves. Now, the thing is, though, after God talks to them and says, hey, you know, you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, you're going to have pain in childbirth. You're also going to have a guy that's going to crush the serpent's head. Um, they change clothing. And then he clothes them. Yeah. So, because uh, it's not time to go back to naked and, and unashamed yet. They could still be without shame, but they still have the, the clothes on. They still have things hiding. Which, of course, will be taken away in the final day. Okay. Um, somewhat of a tangent, but I think it's still... So, uh, oh yeah, so we have this hiddenness because of sin. Our, our, uh, God hides himself for our sake, but at the same time, we're hiding ourselves. Uh, and so the only way that we can unhide ourselves is if God comes and gets us, finds us. And then when he reveals himself, how does he reveal himself? This is kind of the, 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 the craziness. It's still hidden. Because <laughs> we need him hidden. And, and, and so it, there's a joyful hiddenness. So when God reveals himself, because of our sin, we're hiding ourselves. Uh, you know, we're hiding, looking in in ourselves. And God comes along and says, where are you? So, we have to look away from ourselves. And then what, he sa- what does he say? Uh, well, we were afraid and ashamed. And then he said, who, who told you you were naked? And now these questions are exposing their sin. So he's getting them out of... He's, they're confessing their sins. What's, what is kind of unique about Adam and Eve compared to us is that they confess all their sins. But for us, we have a lot of hidden sins, sins that we are even unaware of. And so there is a constant, um, Psalm 19, my hidden sins are taken up into divine mercy. So I'm amazed, I'm I'm, I'm I'm enthralled by the fact that I I have that much sin, but God has that much more mercy. Which, uh, that's how Lauren Winter finishes the chapter, quoting Romans 11. 33 through 36, at least I think it was. Um, there's this amazement of who God is. And Luther says, you know, 
Dear God, how strangely you deal with us. That's, that's what he uh, confesses uh, in his commentary on Isaiah 45, verse 15. On the flip side, though, there's a joyful hiddenness, but there's also that dreadful hiddenness. And that uh, not only do we praise God for his hiddenness, but we also lament for God's hiddenness. Natural catastrophes, injustices, starvation, murder, war, disease. Where is God in all that? And that's a legitimate question. And that's usually where we like to explain away or defend God or make up things. There's some reason for this, you know, and then we fill that in. But we have no word from God to say that's true or not. So it's a very scary spot for us to speak. The one thing, so God is hidden in his majesty. Uh, so Luther has this great little quote there, is that basically the, every, God's in everything. It's hard for us to accept. But, at the same time, well, and actually uh, Oswald Bayer it has a very interesting thing. God is in the midst of, of, of things, veiled in the divine passive, no lover of life, but the accuser and denier, easily confused with the devil, in contrast to his revealed will and the gospel. Um, this is why we, it's very important for us to remain silent where God is silent. Because what's the devil going to try to get you to do? Is to say something. In fact, go back to the Garden of Eden. What does Satan tempt them with? Think, think of the question he asks them. Did, not, did God say that? So he's, he's trying to get them to say something that God didn't say. You will not surely die. And, I mean, well, I mean, it's, yeah, it all makes sense. So, okay. So this is where uh, it's, very, it's very hard because it's painful to remain silent. Because it's hard to imagine a God who's going to let this happen. Okay. Of course, now, we have to say the same thing say the same thing then about the crucifixion. If we believe in the crucifixion, then we also have to ask ourselves, you know, how could God let this happen? Because that is the most tragic moment in human history, in the universe. Um, But of course, it's the crucifixion that we say that's precisely glorious. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says, anyone who hangs on the tree is cursed. That's why the Jews, it's a stumbling block to the Jews. Cursed is son who hangs on a tree. Jesus is hanging on a tree, so he cannot be the chosen one of God. He's cursed. He's cursed. And then, of course, the Greeks, this is all from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, it's asinine. Stupid. Now, most of your translations will say Foolish. But it actually has a relation to the word donkey, which, of course, you know, I won't say what that means. But, yeah, early Christian graffiti, the earliest Christian graffiti in the Palatine in Rome has a confession of, like, Alexander worshiping his God. And it's got Jesus on the cross with a donkey head. It's just so stupid. 
to, to the Greeks, or to the Romans. Greeks is a word for Gentiles. So you have two options with the naked eye. You can either see it as a Jew or as a Gentile. Christoph. Is that the reason that the Jews are not believing in Jesus? Well, there's a variety of reasons. But in terms of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the stumbling block is, uh, so there's a variety of reasons. One is, of course, cursed on the tree. The th- the, there's a variety of other ones, though. How can, I, th- I think I might have mentioned this. Yeah, is the paradox. How can, if God is infinite, how can Jesus be God? Because he's, he's a man. I can see him right there. He's, in fact, I know when he died. I know when he was, well, they don't really know when he was born. But, I mean, he has a birth and he has a death. So that, that's another reason. Um, but that would also be a reason for not just exclusively a Jewish reason. Yeah. So when I say uh, there's two options, one of the most exclusive reasons is definitely this curse of the tree. I mean, Rome would probably say, yeah, I mean, any anybody who's hanging on a tree can't be blessed. But then I don't think they have a word from the gods. I don't know that for sure, but I presume that, yeah. But then... Uh, the Jewish God is not our God. Right. But we have to thank the Jews because we do have a common lineage. As Jesus, Jesus uh, of course, says to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, who's their father? Well, he really wraps it up a notch. The devil. Yeah. So Jesus is making, if you're a faithful, uh, a faithful Old Testament Jew, of course, you're going to then believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So you, guys, you can't, you're like, using the word Jewish is always a little complicated. So um, if you say Jew as opposed to, uh, meaning specifically a rejection of the Messiah, yeah, then it's not the same God. Yep. Okay, um, we're almost out of time, so let's see here. Um, we already talked about St. Peter's Confession. You only see Jesus on the cross as the glory of God because of the Holy Spirit. And again, I'm turning back to the Gospel of John. Um, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night in John chapter 3, and there's a fundamental problem, right? Jesus is saying one thing, and Nicodemus is hearing another. Now what's great about that passage is the language can be understood in two ways. Typically in your Bibles it will be translated as born again or born from above. I think I've said this before to you, but um, the language, if Jesus is talking about the Heavenly Father, the word is not birthing, but it's begetting. Nicodemus hears the same word and is thinking about a mother, so he hears the word birthing. And of course, Nicodemus says, right, how can a man climb back into his mother's womb again? Jesus is not talking about that. And it's not until the very end of John where Nicodemus he comes around. He's one of the faithful ones, along with Joseph of Arimathea, that sticks up for, for Jesus. Um, so the whole point, though, is that in John chapter 3, unless one is begotten from above through water and the Spirit, 
you won't know what's going on. So that's why the early church always called baptism an illumination. It's just this, okay, now we see things. It's by God's act, our minds have been opened. We see this in Luke chapter 24. I just mentioned it, right? Oh, how did our hearts burn within us and our minds are open to God's word? Okay, so, um, because without that, you know, none of this really makes sense. But of course then, and we'll finish with this, so this goes back to the lamentation of God, or God's hiddenness, is that all things will be revealed in, in the, uh, I use the big fancy word, eschaton, the end time. So right now we walk by faith and not by sight. So we walk in the darkness. It's really important for us to kind of keep in mind. When, when Paul is talking about walking by faith and not by sight, I have to think about the ramifications of that. Um, but there will be a point in time, as Paul confesses in 1 Corinthians 13, I wrote that down, is that we, will, we see through a glass darkly now, but then we will see him clearly. But of course that clearly, though, doesn't mean completely. <laughs> right? What does that mean? That means it's going to take all eternity to see who God is. There won't be ever a time where we're not, there's not something being revealed about who God is. There's something that's hidden that's becoming revealed. And that's, it's hard to imagine. Yeah, but it will be great. That'll be yeah. It's it's not something we struggle against. That's right. It, it, which is a peculiar thing. It's hard for us to imagine. But that's why we, that's why we remain silent and we just say that. Well, that's what God says. What's it going to be like, Pastor? I don't know. What's heaven going to be like? Well, let's just read the Bible and I'll say those words again. Um. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be like a wedding feast where we're getting married. I I like to think about that. Okay. Any questions that we can answer in two minutes? (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a nice, I, I, well, I, yeah, I like that, I like that chapter for a variety of reasons, but um, the, uh, there's a lot more to talk about and think about, and I really rushed through it, but Yeah, I think at the very end, that's how she closes the book, or the, the chapter with, uh, she just says, like, from the Epistles of Romans. I don't know why she doesn't quote it, actually. It's ele- Romans 11, I think. It's the one about, like, it, like it's really this joyful thing, like this inexhaustible. She puts a veil. It could be a little irony, yeah. It's called the Prayer of the Apostle. Oh. Yeah. It's from Romans, though. Yeah, it's Epistle to the Romans. Yeah. Depth of the riches, both of wisdom and knowledge of God. Right. Searchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Yep. Um, so, Donna, to answer your question, no, it's not just a Jewish thing. It's definitely a Christian thing, too. So, All right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.